I'm in the frame. Yeah. Okay. So we're looking at chapter six here of Romans, and we are um, in this second major section of the book. Seems to be divided into two sections: one through four, five through eight. Um, the first section we said dealing mainly with justification. The second section mainly with the doctrine of sanctification. And so we're ready for uh, a life characterized by sanctification, verses, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 23. I say here in our notes, Paul now uh, asserts in Romans 6 that Christ's death on our behalf frees us not only from the penalty of sin, that's justification, our we're no longer going to be penalized. We're not guilty. We're innocent. We're declared not guilty, but from the dominion of sin. Now that's an important word, dominion, mastery. I'm not saying it frees us from sin completely, at least not in this life, not in the progressive sanctification, but it does free us from what we call a good word is dominion or mastery. And I'll explain more fully what that is. So, uh, as, we, as we've said, justification, which is our acquittal from the guilt of sin, and sanctification, progressive, present sanctification, deliverance from sinning. We want to be delivered from sinning. We can't confuse them, but they can't be separated. And so we've had that um, thing that I've put up constantly. So I've got them uh, separated, but... They can't really be separated. They can be distinguished, but they go together. Everyone who is justified will ultimately be sanctified. And a person who has no interest in spiritual things, no sanctification at all, we wonder. Uh, we wonder about their justification. And so I say here <clears throat> that the basic meaning of the term sanctify is to set apart, to make holy. In sanctification, the believer is set apart from sin and set apart to God. In justification, God declares us righteous. In sanctification, God makes us righteous or makes us holy. So we distinguish between these two, justification, we are declared righteous. It's non-experiential. So justification doesn't change me inwardly. It's simply a legal declaration. Now, it's true. It's very important. It's like when somebody raises their hand and becomes a citizen of the United States. They raise their hand, they pledge uh, to uphold and so forth. They take the oath and now you're a citizen. Well, it didn't change them inside, didn't change them morally, make them different. But now they have a new standing. Now they have a new position. Now they're citizens. Same way with justification. We are now viewed as righteous by God in Christ. And that's very important. But sanctification, God begins that work the moment we're justified. He wants us to become righteous in our character. And that's experiential. That's a change in us. And it begins right at the moment of salvation. Now, there are three phases to sanctification. So let's just talk about these three phases, past, present, and future. Now, there's different names for these phases. We can, we can look at them by means of time. That is, uh, one is past, 
One is the present and future. So there's, there's three aspects. Uh, the past aspect that we're going to talk about in Romans 6 here is instantaneous. It's happened already. It happens instantaneously. This is uh, this break from the dominion of sin that we're going to talk about. Present sanctification is progressive. So when most of the time when anybody talks about sanctification, they're talking about this middle chart here, progressive sanctification. So when Pastor Ken talks about, you know, our sanctification, we're concerned about our sanctification, we need to do this for our sanctification, we're talking about our present growth in holiness, our maturity. That's progressive. Uh, and what are you going to call that? I'm calling it progressive. Now that first one, that past, instantaneous, uh, a name that's kind of been come into common use is called definitive. And so you'll, I mentioned that here because I'm going to use that term in the notes. And so I want you to know what I'm talking about. The past sanctification that's already happened. What is that exactly? That's, we are free from the dominion of sin. What does that mean? We'll talk about that. So that's past. The present is our progressive sanctification. And the future, there's a future aspect that, uh, that Pat and Rick just experienced last night. They, they had, they, they are now, they are now instant. They were instantaneously sanctified completely. And another name for that is glorification. So we almost separate that as an, as another doctrine. We say the doctrine of sanctification, the doctrine of glorification. So the third aspect of sanctification, the future is glorification that happens instantly at the rapture or when we die, we'll be changed instantly and we won't have to deal with sin again. So let's look at those three phases, the past, the present, and the future. The past are initial sanctification. We could call it, I said definitive here. We could call it definitive. We can say, I have been sanctified. So you're going to see me use those three phases. So the Bible says, we will look at verses that say, Bill Combs has been sanctified. Bill Combs is being sanctified and Bill Combs will be sanctified. So there's a past, a present, a future. Let's look at that. The believer is definitively and instantaneously set apart from the dominion of sin. Now, I'll explain that. The believer is no longer a slave to sin. That's what we mean. We're no longer a slave to sin. This distinguishes us from unsaved people. For sin, Paul says, shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin. So that's our unsaved condition. In our unsaved condition, we were slaves to sin. Now, people sin by various degrees. Some unsaved people appear to be very nice and kind and all that. But their basic tendency in life is still towards selfishness, towards sin. Some people are very corrupt. <laughs> So there's different degrees of corruption, but everyone is totally depraved, as we said, comes into the world that way. And so everyone is a slave to sin in Paul's terminology. He said, you used to be slave to sin, but you have come to obey your, from your heart the, the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. So Paul only knows two kinds of people in this world those who are slave to sin and those who are slaves to righteousness. Now we may say, well, you know, I don't know if every Christian is a slave to righteousness. Yes, they are. That is their basic tendency in life 
they have a basic mindset that they want to please God. Now they, we fall away, we, we backslide and so forth, certainly, but God corrects us and brings us back. So Paul says, you're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. He goes on, first Corinthians. And that is what some of you were. He lists a whole bunch of sins there. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So what I'm talking about is past sanctification. There is a sanctification that is past. You were sanctified. Hebrews 10, 10. And by the will, and by that will, we have been made holy. It's the word sanctified through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So there is a past sanctification that's instantaneous. It happens the moment we're saved. A lot of things happen the moment we're saved. We're justified. That's, that's a, a, a non-experiential work. We are sanctified. That's an experiential work. This, the dominion of sin is broken. We now have a new nature, as we'll see, new capacities. We're born again. We're regenerated. We get a new nature. A lot of things happen at the moment of salvation. But one of them is we have been sanctified. That's why we can be called saints. All Christians are saints, not because they're perfectly righteous or anything like that, but because they have been sanctified. And so they are saints, or the NIV translates it, God's holy people. Then number two, there's present or progressive sanctification. That's the second on the chart there. I am being sanctified. And so... 90, 95% of the time <laughs> when Pastor Ken talks about sanctification, he's talking about present progressive sanctification. That's what we're discussing and interested in talking about most of the time. The believer is progressively being set apart from the power and practice of sin. Throughout this life, the believer is progressively becoming holy while sin is being extirpated. It is God's will, Paul says, that you should be sanctified. Now, he's already said in 1 Corinthians that the Corinthians had been sanctified. And now he tells the Thessalonians, it's God's will that you should be. So there is a present aspect to this. Therefore, don't let sin reign your mortal body that you should obey its evil desires. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So we have this perfect position. The power of sin is broken. We are now able to please God and make progress in our spiritual lives. Then there is this third aspect that we talked about, future or entire sanctification. Glorification is also called. I will be sanctified. The believer will be completely and entirely set apart from the possibility of sin, <clears throat> no longer able to sin. So the unbeliever is not able not to sin. <laughs> He's not able not to sin. That's the unbelieving. That's what we were like. We're, you've heard Pastor Ken use these phrases. We're, unbeliever is not able not to sin. You and I are able not to sin. We're able not to sin, though we do sin, but we're able not to sin. But in the future, we will no longer be able to sin. We'll be not able to sin. The believer will be made perfectly holy either at death or the rapture. He says, Paul says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. 
may your spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says in Ephesians, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. And that will be true for all members of the church. So this is a chart from Grudem's Systematic. We see the non-Christian there on the left is the bottom is a slave to sin. At conversion, we, we're now slaves to righteousness. And so we make progress towards, towards holiness. Now this, is, this varies quite a bit from Christian to Christian. And we make progress sometimes in leaps and bounds, and sometimes we go a long time and don't make a lot of progress. It's kind of an erratic thing, as we're trying to show. And then at death, of course, there's perfect, or the rapture, perfect holiness. <clears throat> I say the Westminster Larger Catechism says, this is, a, you know, the Westminster Catechism is a famous document from the 17th century. Therefore, wherein do justification and sanctification differ? Answer, although sanctification be inseparately joined with justification. That is, you can't have somebody who's justified who is never experiencing any sanctification. Yet they differ in that God in justification imputes the righteousness of Christ. In sanctification, his spirit infuses grace and enables us to exercise thereof. In the former sin is pardoned, in the other it is subdued. It is with this subduing of the power of sin that Paul is concerned in Romans 6. Indicative of this theme is the fact that the word sin occurs only in the singular 16 times here in chapter 6. Sin is a power. He personifies it. It's like a power, like a powerful person. Paul views sin as a power or master that has dominion over all those in Adam. But this power is broken for all those who are in Christ. So Romans 6, as we'll see, is filled with the language of slavery, mastery, and freedom. And Paul will tell us in chapter 6 that those who have been crucified with Christ are no longer slaves to sin. And they shouldn't let sin rule because they've been set from, free from sin and have been enslaved to God, as we read and enslaved to righteousness. And we're told that sin no longer rules and dominates us as it does in our pre-saved condition. Here's Douglas Moo in his commentary. I'm gonna read a long section here. I think it's helpful. He says uh, in chapter five, verses 12 through 21, Paul has sketched in broad and impersonal language, two realms, that of sin and death, founded by Adam, and that of righteousness and life founded by Christ. So all in Adam sin and ultimately die spiritually forever if, you're, if you stay in Adam. Righteousness and life is found in Christ. All people belong to one of these realms or the other. They are now in one or the other because God has viewed them as participating in the founding acts of these realms. The sin of Adam the obedience of Christ. That's what we discussed last week in chapter five. Since in terms of salvation history, 
the realm of Christ has been instituted after that of Adam, we can speak also in temporal categories and call the realm of Adam the old era or eon and that of Christ the new era. Now, so the, the, the time of Adam was the old era, time of Christ is the new era. Now, as we've said before, even people like Abraham were saved conditionally. Uh, they were sort of saved on credit and they became they moved out of the realm of slave to sin, to slave to righteousness, but uh, it was still technically they lived under the old era. This concept is a basic premise of much of what Paul has to say in Romans 6, 7, and 8. For he now personalizes this two realm or two age conception by proclaiming that believers are transferred from the one realm to the other and by showing how this transfer creates a relationship to sin and the law. So we are now in Christ in the new era. We're in Christ, this new realm. We're no longer under the dominion of sin. We're using the word realm because it captures well the emphasis in these chapters that the transfer from Adam to Christ from the old age to the new involves particularly a change in masters. Thus, Paul presents the Christian as one who has moved from the reign of sin and death to that of righteousness and life, from the servitude or lordship of sin to that of righteousness and God, from being under the power of the law to being under the power of grace, from service in oldness of the letter to service in newness of the spirit, from the law or compelling power of sin leading to death to that of the spirit who brings life. By using this imagery of a transfer of realms or dominions with its associations of power and rulership, Paul makes clear that the new status enjoyed by the believer, justification, that's a status, uh, that's forensic, brings with it a new influence and power that, ha that has led and must lead to a new life sanctification. This must is very important. Sanctification must lead to justification, sorry, must lead to sanctification. For as decisive and final as is this transfer into a new realm, it would be a bad misinterpretation of Paul to think that the believer is thereby removed from all contact or influence with the old realm of sin. While belonging to a new realm, the believer brings with him into it many of the impulses, habits, and tendencies of the old life, a constant threat to putting into actual practice the realities of our new realm status. It is this eschatological reservation, that is, we're not quite there in the future, eschaton, the future. We're not, we're not where we want to be. The fact that not until the resurrection and transformation of the body will the believer be severed from all contact with the old Adamic dominion. That explains the indicative imperative combinations that are so characteristics of these chapters. So remember, indicative is a statement of what God has done, and imperative is, therefore, we must do this. So we're told, sin will not rule over you. That's the indicative. We're promised. God promises sin will not rule over the new believer, but do not let sin reign. You are not in the flesh. You're not in the old nature, using flesh or in the sense of old nature, 
do not live according to that old nature. We'll see how that works out. I say here, Paul's discussion is built around two questions inserted by Paul anticipation and in anticipation of the objections that he felt someone might bring against this doctrine. So in chapter six, Paul is telling us why we must not, why we cannot continue to live in sin, why we cannot continue to live a, have a sinful lifestyle. He says, here's why, because this is the, this is the natural reaction of an unsaved person. It's the natural reaction of the Roman Catholic church. They say, if you really Protestants believe in justification by faith alone and not by works, if you can go to heaven and be guaranteed of heaven by just trusting Christ, believing in him and his sacrifice for you and you and then you get a and then you know you're going to heaven well then you could just go out and live like you want to you could go out and live like the devil <laughs> that's always the objection you see this certainty of, of assurance of salvation because we've been justified and declared righteous would lead one they say to just live a sinful life and paul is saying no that's not possible for the true believer, because the power of sin over us, the dominion of sin that ruled over us in our old lives has been broken, and now we've been given the spirit and a new direction in life. So let's look at that. Um, a life characterized by sanctification. Now I've got a mistake right here. I say dead to sin. I should have said death to sin. I corrected that in the notes there, but there's a little bit of difference. We're not dead to sin. And you, if you think about that, you know, I'm not dead to sin. Sin still troubles me and plagues me and so forth like that. So uh, that's not the best word. Paul doesn't say we're dead to sin, but he said we, we did experience a death to sin's dominion. And, and I'm going to explain that to sin's <clears throat> mastery over us. And so I should have, had the word death there instead of dead. So it's, it's some a slight difference, but it's an important difference. He starts off with a question. Uh, he says, verse one, <clears throat> what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? This question sets before the reader a false conclusion that Paul recognizes one might draw from his teaching in 520. <clears throat> excuse me, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That was at the end of chapter five. No matter how deep in sin man went, God gave more grace in Christ. So you might say, well, what shall we say then? Let's just keep on sinning and God will keep pouring out grace. And uh, he says, uh, this is the question. <clears throat> So to go on sinning is to remain under sin's power, to let it continue to be the element in which we live and move and have our being, to let it be the moral atmosphere of our existence. So again, this question might be raised by someone who opposes the doctrine of salvation by grace, the doctrine of grace salvation, because they feel continuation in sin is a logical outcome of that doctrine. In other words, won't the reign of grace simply encourage sinning 
without the law to curb it. If you don't have the law to curb it. And Paul says, Paul will respond and tell us, well, the law never curbs sinning. <laughs> and the reign of grace, far from encouraging sin, is the only means by which sin can truly be defeated. And we all know that experientially in our lives. We know that, <clears throat> um, I don't know what your life was like, but there are many people who have tried to live good lives and moral lives and so forth, but they fail. The only possible hope for us is in Christ, where we have this new capacity. We have the spirit to enable us to live a life that could be pleasing to God. So Paul is again asked, explaining why we cannot continue in sin. Shall we go on sinning? And he says, uh, union with Christ means death to sin. Well, what does that mean? <clears throat> By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live any, in it any longer? With the words, by no means, Paul emphatically denies that the Christian should sin in order to gain more grace. Paul explains himself with a rhetorical question. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So the Christian's death to sin, as I say here, is the main point of Romans 6. The idea is of a decisive separation from sin and emancipation from our enslavement to sin, a separation from the dominion of sin, verse 6b, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, verse 14a, sin shall not be your master. Initial or past sanctification discussed earlier is what we're talking about here. So to say we've died from sin, the power of sin that dominated us and enslaved us, that has been broken. Now, sin, as I said here, is, is it personified. It's, it's like a person. It's like a power that rules over the unsaved, Paul is talking about here. Um, and we Christians have been taken out of that tyranny of, of sin uh, by this radical transfer uh, that's so decisive. Paul uses the language of death here. Yeah, the, the, the transfer of, of us from being enslaved to sin to where we are now is so, is so great, so radical, so decisive that uh, he uses the language of death and new life to explain what he's talking about here. Now, the image of dying is used for a couple reasons here. As the next verses will <clears throat> explain, uh, Paul will connect our dying to the dying of Christ. When Christ died on the cross, there's a sense in which we died with him. That is, that's when the power of sin was broken, uh, is when we, we experienced the power of his death. Um, and so uh, just as Christ died and was transferred into a new realm, so we died to sin as a power that ruled over us and puts us into a new realm. So this uh, removal from sin's power involves more than just removal of a guilty status, but it includes removal of these powerful influences that compel unbelievers to sin. We're, we're now brought under a powerful influence that compels us to live a godly life. I say here, the Christian does not live in sin in the sense of making a being in the sphere of sin. And so under the lordship of sin, 
So <clears throat> that's what Paul is talking about here um, when he says, um, we, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So we don't live in sin in the sense that we are under its lordship. This passage, I say, will make it clear that sin's lordship is a pre-Christian experience. Living in sin is describing a lifestyle of sin, a habitual practice of sin, such that one's life could be said to be characterized by that sin rather than by the righteousness God requires. Such habitual sin, continuing in sin, living in sin, is not possible for the unbeliever as a constant unchangeable situation. The believer has experienced a transfer out from under the dominion, domain, or tyranny of sin. And dying to sin, the believer is no longer held by the bands of total depravity and have been, uh, have been given a corresponding desire for obedience. So because we have died to sin does not mean that we're insensitive to its enticements. It means that we are delivered from the absolute tyranny of sin. Sin's power as a tyrannical ruler is broken over from us. Uh, and that has to be evident in our practice. It should be evident in our practice. But, you know, as I said, it's the nature of the Christian experience that the Christian can at times live in a way that's inconsistent with the reality that God has made known to us in Christ, made us in Christ. Um, it's not sin that's died, but the believer that's died. Sin remains with us. We still have a sinful nature, sinful tendencies, but it doesn't reign. Therefore, living in sin is incompatible with our Christian existence and impossible for the Christian as a constant, constant condition. But it remains a real threat, nevertheless, no question. So it's justification by faith and sanctification by struggle. Sanctification by struggle. Both are provided for equally in Christ. Verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? By introducing this verse with the phrase, don't you know, Paul signifies that what he is saying has a basis in what the Roman Christians already know about baptism and Christian experience. Death to sin, Paul argues, is part and parcel of becoming a Christian. We died to sin through union with Jesus Christ in his death. This union with Christ is no mystical merging of our persons with that of Christ. Wayne Grudemick defines the concept here. He says, union with Christ is a phrase used to summarize different relationships between believers in Christ, through which believers receive every benefit of salvation. And I've just been showing two benefits, union with Christ, and then I had a line down to justification and another line drawn to sanctification, those two major benefits. But everything we have in Christ comes because of union with Christ. The, uh, these relationships include the fact that we are in Christ, Christ is in us, we are like Christ, and we are with Christ, he says. And so there's the chart I'm showing. <clears throat> I say here, Mark Snowberger, you know Dr. Snowberger, 
he uses the terms experimental and experiential to describe the union. He defines it as a participation in the divine nature, such that the believer shares in Christ's communicable attributes, things like love and righteousness, and, you know, things like that. Def uh, this is in his dissertation here. Romans 6 is setting forth one of the benefits of union with Christ, death to sin. A ju judicial benefit of the union with Christ is justification. An experiential benefit is sanctification. Union with Christ is the ground of justification and the means of sanctification. But when did this death to sin take place? Well, I've already said it took place when we were saved. At the moment we're saved, the instantaneous time we're saved, that's when it is. But what does Paul say here? Uh, since verse 3 connects death to sin, specifically with baptism, um, he says here, you know, in verse 3, don't you know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, <clears throat> um, connects sin to that. It's best to think of death to sin as occurring at the believer's baptism. Here, baptism functions as a metonymy. What's that? Like, well, Webster says, a figure of speech consisting of the use of the name of one thing for that of another of which it is an attribute or with which it is associated. So as crown in lands belonging to the crown. So uh, crown is an aspect or something that's shared by the ruler, the king. We could say the lands belonging to the king, or the lands belonging to the king. And, uh, but we can say that lands belong to the crown. The crown is part of being king. You get a crown and so forth. And so, <clears throat> as I'm saying here, it functions as a metonymy. That is a shorthand for the believer's conversion. So Paul is using baptism here uh, as, a con as a shorthand for the believer's conversion. Baptism conversion involves us with the death of Christ, a death that itself is a death to sin. As Paul will argue in verses 8 through 10, it's most likely that Paul's readers would think of water baptism, since this is how Paul and other New Testament writers normally use this Greek word baptizo and the noun baptisma. As I noted previously, baptism here functions as a shorthand for the conversion experience as a whole. The early church conceived of faith, the gift of spirit, and water baptism as components of one unified experience. Just as faith is always assumed to lead to baptism, so baptism always assumes faith for its validity. Now, this is a little tough going for us as Baptists, or <laughs> kind of Baptist here <laughs> at the Community Bible Church, because we tend to want to separate baptism very strongly from conversion, from justification anyway. Uh, and rightfully so, <clears throat> because what has happened over the years in Christianity is there's developed a, an, an era, a serious era, a very serious era that somehow baptism can save you. Uh, this, you know, you have infant baptism, which 
some groups like the Roman Catholic Church say that it, sa it initially saves you. You're, you're free from all your sins. If you died after your baptism, you go right to heaven. The Lutheran Church believes that baptism saves children. It puts them in the state of grace. Uh, so that that's a problem. And so people have confused uh, baptism as, as accomplishing something, as bringing about regeneration or something like that, which is a serious error. And Paul didn't battle that in the early church. No one was going around in the early church saying, uh, baptism saves you and, and baptize and say you're saved. So he didn't deal with that. Uh, and if you know, you remember in the book of Acts, people got saved and they got baptized generally fairly quickly, you know, uh, often very quickly in, in the New Testament. So they expressed faith, they were saved, they were baptized, kind of a unified conversion experience. So Paul wants to talk to them about the time when they, when this break with sin happened. It happened at their conversion, when they were experienced faith and repentance and faith and so forth. And he, he uses uh, baptism here because uh, that was a universal experience. Uh, we don't have any examples in the New Testament of people who were saved and not baptized. That was just not done. As you know, if you look in the New Testament, it was saved, baptized was a foregone conclusion. So I say here in verses three and four, then we can assume that baptism stands for the whole conversion experience, presuming, presuming, presupposing faith and the gift of the spirit. So baptism for Paul and other New Testament writers had significance only as part of a larger experience. It's the seal on one's conversion. So baptism in Romans 6 stands by this, we might say, metonymy for the entire conversion experience. One gets into a relationship with God, not by baptism by itself, but by conversion, of which baptism is one key element. And that's why at church, you know, Pastor Kim will often try to emphasize to people that, you know, you should be baptized. Uh, we have, unfortunately, you know, people who get saved and they just put off their baptism. They delay their baptism and it's really not a good thing to do. So I say we conclude that we died to sin at our conversion, regeneration, being born again. This death to sin is something we actually experience. This freedom from the dominion of sin is the actual, not merely potential possession of every genuine believer. And I ask a hypothetical question here. Are believers totally depraved? Think about that for a moment here. Let your mind roll over that. We talked about what total depravity is. And so if I was giving you an exam, this is a question we often ask seminary students. One of the things we had in seminary when I was teaching in seminary was the, those who are graduating sem, uh, seniors had to prepare a doctrinal statement, uh, a very long doctrinal statement, you know, 10, 15, 20 pages of laying out their doctrine. And they would list all the doctrines in order, you know, inspiration, uh, uh, bibliology, the doctrine of the Bible, uh, theology proper, Christology, pneumatology, uh, so on, all the doctrines, about 10 doctrines, 10 major doctrines. And they would have to appear before the faculty uh, 
right before graduation, you had to go before the faculty and you had about six faculty members in there. I, you can imagine that would be very intimidating. I'm glad I didn't have to do that when I was in seminary. <laughs> Uh, and, and they would ask you, they asked you questions for about two hours. Now, one reason we did it, or they, it started before I got there, but it was kind of prepare people for ordination examinations and things like that. It's very helpful in that sense. But so they, unfortunately they they developed these kind of tricks. One of these questions that we ask students very often is, are believers totally depraved? And you start thinking about that. Well, let me see here. Are we, we are sinners. We're still sinners. We still sin. And so are we totally depraved? And the truth is, no, uh, we're not totally depraved. And why, why, do, what do, why, why do I say that? Well, total depravity includes a couple of concepts. It includes the fact that every part of our being is affected by sin. And that's true. Every part of our being is affected by sin, uh, still is, whether we're saved or whether we're lost. So when we're saved, it doesn't change. Every part of our being is affected by sin. But it also includes total inability. Total depravity means that we are under the dominion of sin. We cannot please God by our actions. We are not uh, acceptable to God. And Romans 6 has not taken place. We have not died to sin. We're under the dominion of sin. So it's not proper to say that Christians are totally depraved. We're depraved, we're sinful, we're corrupt. But the point is sanctification is removing that depravity. It's we are increasing in holiness. So here's just a couple of verses. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them. So that's, this, that's one distinguishing factor that we're not totally depraved. We do accept the things that come from God. So there is a hostility when you're, when, when you're totally depraved. There's a hostility of the unbeliever to the things of God. Well, that hostility is removed. So we're not totally depraved. Paul will say later on, the mind governed by the flesh, that is the sinful nature, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. There's the unsaved condition. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So unsaved people cannot ultimately do things that are pleasing to God that will merit that they get into heaven or something like that. It's always tainted by sin, sinful desires, maybe deeply buried, but you however, are not in the realm of the flesh. We're not in the realm, but in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of God, they don't even belong to Christ. So therefore, uh, no, we are not technically totally depraved. We're depraved, but Depravity is being extirpated or, or removed gradually as holiness is increased. Uh, verse 4a, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. I say in this verse, Paul draws a conclusion, therefore, from the believer's incorporation into the death of Christ. If we have died with Christ through baptism, Paul reasons that we should also have been buried with him through baptism. Burial with Christ is a description of the participation of the believer in Christ's own burial, a participation that comes to the believer by means of baptism conversion. So, so close is our association with Christ's death that we may be said to have been buried with him. Burial, burial confirms the reality of death. You don't bury someone who's not dead, hopefully. So it's like 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, 
Christ died. He was buried. Why does Paul say he was buried? What's the point of it? Well, that confirms he was dead. Then he rose again. Okay. And he was seen by 500. That confirms the resurrection. So burial here shows that we did die with Christ. Um, then uh, 4b through 11, union with Christ means participation in a new life. In order that, that is, we were buried with him through baptism. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The main point of verse 4 is found in the last part of the verse. It's the purpose of our burial with Christ that we too may live a new life. This connection between the indicative of our incorporation into Christ and the imperative of Christian living is the real heart of Romans 6. The truth, the fact, the indicative that we died with Christ. When Christ died, we died with him. That is, when we got saved, we were identified with Christ, and we died to sin. The power of sin was broken, and he lives a new life. Now we have that imperative. The indicative imperative is used in Scripture to explain our new spiritual situation as Christians. The indicative is a statement of something God has done to us, and the imperative is a statement of what we should do as a result. The indicative makes the imperative possible. So you'll see people all, a lot talking, or I'll talk, and others might talk about the indicative imperative. Ephesians 5.8, here's a classic example. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So there it is, using light and darkness to describe the unsaved condition, totally depraved, from the saved condition. The power of sin is broken. You were lightness, but now you are light in the Lord. And here's the imperative, therefore live as children of light. And Paul will say in Romans 6, don't let sin reign your mortal bodies. Children of light is not a description of perfection, but a basic disposition. We're children of light. We're, no long, we're, we're slaves to righteousness. That's a basic disposition, not perfection, disposition. The new life is possible because the believer's participation in the spiritual power of Christ's resurrection where we, we, we have that power. Not only have we been delivered from sin's tyranny, but we've also been given a new power of obedience through our participation in the power of Christ's resurrection. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like this. What has been implied in the latter part of verse four and now clearly stated in verse five that is, the participation of the believer in the resurrection of Christ. Union with Christ in his death means that in the future, the believer will participate in Christ's resurrection. We will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection. But the same resurrection power is now operative in the believer's life. We have power to live a holy life, given to us by the Holy Spirit who lives within, but that's resurrection power. Verse 6, for we know that our old self, was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Let me read that again. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer, we should no longer be slaves of sin. Verses six and seven, we'll come to verse seven, restate the fact and amplify the meaning of the believer's death with Christ which has been taught in verses four and five. 
crucified with him refers not to our own burial and death, but to our participation in Christ's crucifixion. Compare Galatians 2.20, where Paul uses this verb. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Of course, it's important to remember at this point what this death means. Romans 6 describes a change within the believer as a result of conversion that is beyond a legal change in legal status. Justification, but that also affects the person, initial or definitive sanctification. So this death to sin, a change within the believer as a result of conversion that's beyond the change in legal status, that's just justification. That's uh, non-experiential, uh, um, as we said. So the freedom from the dominion of sin that Paul is talking about is the actual possession of everyone who is united to Christ. Paul says it is our old self, literally it's old man, the, the, you know, we think of the King James and that's what the Greek word is anthropos is kind of old man, old self. Paul says it's our old self, our old man, that has been crucified, that word so, not should be in there, that has been crucified with Christ. Well, what is this old man? Okay, the old man is what we were in Adam. The old man is my old unregenerate self. The old man is actually dead, crucified. Crucifixion kills people. It killed Christ. Just as Christ's crucifixion resulted in his death. The believer is properly described as a new man. Colossians 3, 9. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self or your old man with its practices and have put on the new self or new man, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So here's just a fine point, and it's not, it's not a huge situation, but it's technically improper. Technically. Okay, don't. It's not some big sin or any problem, a great sin, but it's technically improper to speak of our struggle with sin as a struggle between the old man and the new man. Now, this is commonly done. It's been done. Schofield Reference Bible, you know, that I was raised on. You have a struggle between the old man and the new man. Now, that, that's not so bad. We do have a struggle between what is old in us and what is new in us. Old nature, new nature. Old, old disposition, new disposition. We have a struggle. And, and some people call that old man and new man. But technically, that's not Paul's language. Because Paul says here, the old man died. <laughs> the old man was crucified. He was put to death, and he's no longer with us. So now we're a new man in whom sin dwells. There's the correct way of, it should be said, but... It's not some great sin if you say, my old man, I'm struggling with my old man. Oh, we understand what you mean. You're struggling with your sin and, and, and so forth. But technically speaking, the old man has been crucified, is dead. We're now a new man, unfortunately, that still has the remnants of sin. These remnants of sin need to be extirpated, need to be removed. And that's what progressive sanctification is seeking to do to remove the remnants of that sinful disposition that we possess. 
So you can see it there in the diagram. I'm trying to illustrate the diagram if I can. Uh, you know, justification, we begin progressive sanctification, old nature. So the, the, old, the unsaved person is dominated by sin. He's under the dominion of sin, which means he just has a sinful disposition or she has a sinful disposition. And then we receive a new disposition, partakers of the divine nature, as Peter says, a new nature, a new disposition. And we hope that's going to grow and become stronger and larger, and it ultimately will dominate that glorification. Getting back to verse 6, we see that this participation of our old man in the crucifixion of Christ is so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. The word translated done away with does not mean annihilation or extinction. Paul's use of the same verb in similar context suggests rather the connotation of a power whose influence is taken away, rendered impotent or rendered powerless. That's the reading of the NIV margin there. So that the, this, old, this old nature, this old, old man, you know, the power here uh, can be rendered inoperative. Uh, and I, and I mean, take translates this uh, done away with, but more like rendered operative or rendered powerless, that kind of thing. What must be in, rendered op, uh, a powerless um, is, if we are no longer to serve sin is the body ruled by sin. By this expression, Paul is not referring to just the physical body, but the whole person and all of his sin prone faculties. The physical body is not itself the source of sin. The physical body is not itself the source of sin. Here's Romans 6, 12. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you, make you obey its passions. Don't present your members, that is your physical body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness, Romans 6, 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, present your members, your parts, your physical, as slaves. So the physical body is not itself the source of sin. Paul is here using body metaphorically for the whole person, synecdically apart for the whole. The word body was chosen in order to connote the person as the instrument or contact with the world. Here's the Holman Christian standard. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. The body is that aspect of the person that acts in the world and that can be directed by something else, by either the person's new capacity, new nature, or by sin, their own capacity, their own nature. So Paul is saying that our capacities to interact with the world around us have been rescued from the dominion of sin. What this means for the Christian life is spelled out in this concluding clause that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Verse 7, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 6 says, represent the believer as a slave who is crucified and dies with Christ, 
in order that his enslavement to sin may cease, verse 7 is probably be interpreted as illustrating or confirming this by citing a proverbial statement barred from ordinary human experience. The essence of it is that death severs the hold of sin on a person. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Paul now reiterates the tie between dying with Christ and being raised with Christ that he sets forth first in verse 5. He does this to emphasize the significance of that connection as it's viewed in light of the nature of Christ's own death and resurrection. Although our bodily resurrection is in the future, we are presently experiencing the benefits of Christ's resurrection. And this is what Paul will discuss now in verses 9 and 10. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The faith that we will share Christ's resurrection is grounded in what we know to be true about the nature of Christ's resurrection. So Paul's focus in this verse is on the nature of Christ's resurrection really for himself. Christ's resurrection means he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery. Verse 10, the death he died, he died once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. This verse is designed to provide further proof for the last statement of verse 9, death no longer has mastery over him. But in doing so, Paul also provides an important link in the chain of reasoning by which he argues that our death with Christ is a death to sin. For now he makes clear that Christ's death itself is a death to sin. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. Now it's interesting that Paul uses the slang language to describe Christ's relationship to sin as he does to describe Christians' relationship to sin. In both cases, it's a dying to sin. Now, this is important. Although Christ did not need to be freed from sin's power in the way we need to be since he was sinless. So this, there's not a com complete parallel here at all. Christ didn't need to be freed from sin's power. He was sinless. But a parallel, you can kind of suggest a parallel as Paul does here between the situation of Christ and Christians. If we remember that Paul is continuing to speak of, of sin as a ruling power, just as death once had authority over Christ because of his full identification with sinful people in the old era. He lived in the old era. He, lived, he was a human being. So he was under sin's sway in that sense. So the other ruling powers of the old era could have said to have authority over Christ. So in this general sense, as a man of the old era, uh, he was subject to the power of sin. The important difference is, of course, he never suc succumbed to sin. He never sinned, actually sinned at all but he was tempted to sin. He did uh, feel the effects of sin. of sin. He was tempted as we are, Hebrews tells us. So the, Christ's death to sin was a, was a death to sin's authority over him. The devil could no longer tempt him. He's no longer in the realm of the world. And this breach was once for all. He died to sin once for all. Uh, and so this finality of Christ's separation from sin uh, shows, shows why death can no longer rule over him, for death is the product of sin. The life Christ lives in his resurrection state is a life lived to God, that is, for the benefit of to the glory of God. By this, Paul does not imply that Christian Christ ever lived without seeking the will and glory of God, first of all, but his resurrection has given him a new power to carry out God's will and purpose. You remember, we saw that in chapter one. He's now made Lord and Christ. He is uh, has this new position. Although the main reason Paul's mentions Christ living to God is probably here to set up a comparison 
with Christ and the Christian that he's going to say now in verse 11. And let's look at that and we'll close. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This draws, verse draws a comparison between the death and life of Christ and the attitudes Christians are to adopt toward themselves in the same way. As the death of Christ, as death, as the death Christ died was a death to sin, so Christians who have died with Christ must now regard themselves as being those who are dead to sin. Just as Christ's once for all death led to resurrection and a new life in God's service, so Christians who participate and their resurrection lies must regard themselves as those who are alive to God. So we have a, an imperative here, a command, count yourselves dead to sin. And this commands us, it summons us here to continually consider ourselves as people who have been brought into this new state. We have to reckon on that. We have to remember that something has happened to us. Something has changed. Uh, as always in Paul, the indicative is the basis of the imperative. You know, you were once darkness, but now you are light, you know, live as light, live as children of light. And now because we were united with Christ in our conversion, we've been made dead to sin and alive to God. And so it remains for us to appropriate and apply what God has done for us. So, this command to count yourselves dead to sin is not a command of mind over matter. It's not just, oh, just think about this and believe this and imagine. No, this is to reckon on something that's true. Remember, uh, this is to reckon on something that's true, to realize and reflect on the fact that our union with Christ has resulted in death, the death of sin as a tyrant in our lives. The power of sin has been broken. And so, we can't say, well, I just can't help it. I just can't. Yeah, we can help it. <laughs> we can help it. Uh, God has given us power to help it. Now, it's not going to be easy. It's not, it's not easy. Sin is a difficult. Remember I said justification by faith, sanctification by struggle. So it's a struggle to live the Christian life. It's a battle with sin, the flesh, and the devil. But the, the power a dominion of sin has been broken. We have to recognize that and realize God has given us the spirit, the power to live for him. And so we must seek to do that and be obedient to him. Well, I've gone over here, but uh, we're kind of behind. So I thought I would drag out a little longer here tonight. 